Guys, it's why are we talking about rabbits? It's John, First Things Foundation. This is a long chat. Stick with it. Kilts, Calvin comes on with us from the dra- Dragon Common Room. Folks over at University of Chicago doing a deep dive on the Middle Ages and what the modern age needs in re- <laughs> in relation to the medieval world. Rachel Rachel Fulton Brown at University of Chicago. This is Kilts, her right hand lady, and this is a conversation about her latest article called Normans in Paris. It's about race and France and the revolution and how everything has lost its salt. Guys, hold on, because Kilt is going to take us into this article that she's written and into life as a philosopher. Tell us just two seconds about you for people who didn't watch the last time you were on. It's been a while. Okay. I'm adjusting the mic because uh, I have to. Ooh, listen to that. That sounded, so, good. That sounded good. The better now? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, what am I doing? I'm a poet. Um, yes. I collaborate with Professor Rachel Fulton Brown. Uh, who is uh, the creator and mastermind of, a, of our projects. It's called Dragon Common Room. And uh, our, our project is all about reviving the English language and uh, making Christian poetry. So uh, we are currently working on a five-act fairy tale called Draco Alchemicus. And uh, probably the best way I could describe what I'm doing is uh, – is an artistic collaboration with uh, with uh, Professor Fulton Brown to connect art with the the medieval world, medieval Western world. Yeah. What happened to you that you fell in love with the medieval world? What happened? Were you? Because um, yeah. guys, when we talk about her article, which is fantastic, there's a there's a power in your writing. So what happened? Were you rejecting something? Something? No. No, I didn't reject anything. It's just, it's just me. <laughs> I, all I've done is run around the planet trying to figure out why I didn't like the civilization I was born into. Right. It was that simple. And so, you know, eventually knocking into a few people here and there in different continents, it just became a process of eventually meeting uh, the professor. And, you know, when, um, when Rachel and I were talking and having our in-depth conversations, realizing that she was kind of the only one that I would speak to from the West who was understanding what I was talking about. And so she said, you are like, um, she described it like she was talking to a medieval Christian from Western Europe when she was talking to me. And so I said, okay, okay. Now I feel good because, uh, I realize why everything I talk about seems so alien to, to the modern West modern culture here. So that's how we met up though. Isn't it? It's great. And we get, we get to connect then. I know, but you're, it's your, I just, I love your writing. It, when I, so I wrote an article recently about race. Um, Our conversations in first things are always, they're not always about race. 
they're about the faulty category called race because when you go mm-hmm. under the skin, you start to realize, oh my God, something they did something. They they did something to us. And I want to talk about what happened in the modern world with race. But yeah, what 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 you did for me when I was reading you last year is first of all, it's a female voice, which is really nice, but there's a power, there's a majesty to it, and there's an I wouldn't call it angry because you're too funny. Um, there's a real necessary, um, there's a, there's a swords, a sword edge to what you're writing. So let's, let's do France for a second. So you, yeah, I got, I got, or, wait, go ahead. I got my jail hammer out, you know, just ready to hammer a tent peg into, <laughs> into someone's head. That's kind of the way I approach things, <laughs> you yeah, know, but, very feminine, but also, you know, yeah, but I was talking to Paul Kingsley. feminine. It's weird though. I was talking to Paul Kingsworth and I said, Your your writing is hopeful to me. And he's like, he's like, you know, no one's ever said that. And I find your writing is is super funny. But I think a lot of people <laughs> would be like, she's just like ripping a hole in everything. I'm like, no way, it's funny. It's and <laughs> his writing is hopeful to me. Your, your writing is funny. Mm. You don't take yourself too seriously, but tell me about this. You're a white girl, according to racial politics of the modern age is that true according to america yeah according to america not not according to australia no in australia what did they know you as if a government official had to determine to weird <laughs> well that depends on uh the date you know it's like uh, alexander dumas said in the count of monte cristo treason is a matter of dates so race is also a matter of dates uh, in Australia. And um, it's a complicated question because first off, we don't take a racial census here the way your State Department does when you have to tick the form, say, African-American, Caucasian, Asian, Hispanic, right. you know, this thing called Latino. We don't have this uh, census of, uh, of racial categories uh, in the Australian continent. We did have a white, white Australia policy in Federated Australia also. And this excluded migration from particular regions of the planets, and it also excluded migration from uh, areas uh, east of Central Europe. Essentially, most of the Mediterranean countries were blocked from migrating here. Um, Lebanon, uh, Baltic countries, uh, Russians, Slavs, etc. So, um, under that particular policy, what we had was the generation of a third ethnic category that you guys don't use in America, and uh, it was. Well, this sounds. This uh, sounds great. What is this third? <laughs> it's it. I mean, colloquially, like people here just say it uh, to each other, and it's kind of a normalized thing. At, at the time, it was a slur. Now it's normal, but we just say we're wogs. That's right. So. That's not beige, be, though. That's it. That's what is that? That's go ahead. I want to hear this. It's um, wog again. The other euphemism we use here would be ethnic. You know, when they when they talk about ethnic groups in in America, you're talking about ethnic ethnic minorities. You don't usually think about the Italians and the Greeks in America as being ethnics. Uh, in Australia, they are classed as ethnics. So are Croatians, Hungarians, Romanians. Uh, so all of these kind of like. European ethnics Smarmy, got lumped into a, yeah yeah exactly they all got lumped into a category of war. We did have and that it, category here actually. 
It was mm. called squirming. <laughs> like, not cool. I'm probably canceled right now, but yeah. That's <laughs> mm. Well, I could say, like, I could say a bunch of different things that, uh, you know, would probably be too, too hot for YouTube. But uh, the, the idea was that the people that migrated from these regions, they're usually Catholics or Orthodox Christians. Yeah. Um, and they were discluded from being white by the WASP elite of the country here. White Anglo uh, White Anglo Saxon Protestants. So basically, what happened was we formed a different racial category that um, defined uh, what it, what was essentially European but not white, and that's something that I think is quite controversial for a lot of uh, Americans to hear, especially yeah. given my skin tone. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, it's super helpful toward this end. Race, I don't think it's real, but it becomes relevant when people start to put laws in place. Okay, so let's move yeah, forward. It does. The, the French have put laws in place, but mm -hmm. after the revolution, and your article is going to dig into this, after the revolution, and after they invited, as you said, it's my favorite quote in the article. Guys, I'm going to say this out loud. It's my very favorite quote. It is after the French invited um, disparate people to join their humanist orgy, which they did. I love this. They have now bumped into this race conversation and had a series of riots over the last couple months. And you wrote about it. Why did you feel compelled to write about it? The spirit. Um Weird life experience, uh, French heritage, <laughs> kind of all of the above. Um, I uh, I found it really fascinating that um, I mean the the conversation about what was happening over there was only put on the line of race instead of a religious uh, angle, but also. <clears throat> Because I'm a colonial subject, I can see the dynamics of different things in light of colony versus empire and colony versus host, uh, like a, a, the mother nation or the motherland or the fatherland that's created the colonial system. Um, I know America started out as a British colony, but you guys had your revolution. You know, you had your 1776 and you have your July 4th fireworks and you, you celebrate becoming your own nation. and. Um, America has this kind of uh, national and imperial pride in no longer being under the thumb of, of a monarch or a crown. Australia doesn't have that experience at all. We have a completely different origin story. And so um, having this kind of uh, absence of uh, Republican further, fervor in in the in the culture here mm -hmm. means that I see the kind of like the dynamic of a republic looks different to us because we're technically still a Commonwealth country. We've never had a revolution. We've never had a Republican revolution in Australia. Um, we're colonial subjects. Our militaries have always worked as mercenaries for the British Empire, um, and of course, because I have, uh, you know, I have. Um, <laughs> I have one foot in Africa. Uh, I can see that 
this would be very confusing to people that are looking at France from only the point of what's going on right now without all of the backstory behind the uh, that's what, what your the French does. have done. Yeah. It gives mm. us a crazy beautiful backstory. Well, <laughs> the Dumas story is really cool. So mm. before we keep going, tell me about the foot in Africa. People want to know about that. That's your Orthodox. Oh. That's your. Okay. Now I'm an Orthodox guy. So you know how we do this. I oh, know. We've got to tread carefully. Yeah. I know. That's your Orthodox mm. Christianity as per what some people call Coptic Christianity. Is that true? Yes. Yes. What some people would call Coptic Orthodox Christianity. Um, so, I mean, I'll, like, I'll be repeating myself a little bit. Um, sorry, bro, from what we said in like previous, uh, previous discussions. But I think it's okay. Um, the, so the, the process of me leaving, uh, leaving Australia to, to, travel and live uh, and and set up uh, set up life in Africa eventually brought me into the Orthodox faith um, it's a it's a very <laughs> a very windy road to find something that I grew up around considering that I grew up in a Greek colony in Australia like I'm um, culturally uh, uh, culturally more familiar with Greeks than I am uh, anglo-saxon Australia um, but I went to Africa and I met a lot of black nationalists. <laughs> I went to Africa, I met a lot of black nationalists. Uh, I uh, immersed myself in African Islamic uh, community for a while. And uh, I also met a lot of Rastafarians that had been traveling to the continent from all over the place, including from Europe. So then, of course, I got introduced to Ethiopia. And at that point, um, my journey into Orthodox Christianity began because uh, it was then fully revealed to me and explained um, properly the uh, the side of um, the Christian story that was hidden from the British world, from the British mind for 400 years, yeah. And so all so, of this, yeah. the only reason we're talking about this, because we, we know about this about one another, but... Is because mm. now this this backstory of yours or something mine we we they come together to try to analyze modernity and then I just love the article that you've written is something like hey France um, it's not what you think it is <laughs> these rights <Yeah. laughs> what you think it is so what 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 uh. what is the so you get into homage and you get into what I want to call fealty. Talk about why the French, the 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 riots, and for people who could care less about that, talk about how it may be that people are angry about something that's not evident on your television when it comes to homage and giving giving um obedience to something higher. So yeah. tell us about that stuff. Um. So I started the article talking. Uh, talking about how Alexander Dumas was the, was the anchor for my thinking about the French situation. And um, there's the opening scene in his novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, where uh, his, his lead character, who becomes the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmund de, uh, Dantes, 
he's coming on a ship sailing from Italy and they're entering the harbour of Marseille. Marseille is a really important French city for a lot of reasons, a lot of historical reasons. Uh, people in the West, again, uh, white people don't talk about the Mediterranean as though it has its own distinct history that's separate from the northern, uh, the northern side of Europe. But Wogs understand this really clearly. So if you're, um, if you're looking at Europe as a kind of blanket of just Europe and it's like pan-Euro stuff, it doesn't really work very well. Um, what I liked about Dumas was that he really thought in these very, very intricate and nuanced ways. And I liked the way that Edmond Dantes was coming from Italy into Marseille. Marseille is this ancient uh, seaport. It was actually uh, f originally founded by Greek colonists that had come over to f the south of France. So they start this port and it's sort of like this is the point at which um, – uh, France connects to the rest of the, the rest of the world, the rest of the civilized world. So Dantes is, is sailing into Marseille and his captain on the boat is sick with a fever. He's caught in Italy. So it's obviously malaria because at that time Italy was a malarial region, same as sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, the ship is called the Pharaoh, Pharaon in, uh, in French. So instantly I'm seeing things like in this, in this opening scene. And I saw exactly what Dumas had put in there as his key to this entire story. For him, I think that's the key to his entire understanding of being a French man and of being a man uh, and also um, uh, demonstrated this in that the captain dies and Edmond Dumont, uh, Edmond Dantes, sorry, he, he, takes the, the sword of the captain and his cross and says, we're going to give this to his wife. So we have these two symbols, the cross and the sword. And the, the ship is kind of operating in this way that Dantes has to take over as soon as the captain dies because they have a chain of command. And so there's no argument, there's no fighting, there's no squabbling. We know who's coming up next, done. So all of this was there for me and I thought this was a good place to start because Dumas, Alexander Dumas, would have understood very clearly that the relationships of the men on that boat would have been exactly the same as the relationships that the men had with his own father. And that is to give fealty or to give homage, uh, homage to, to their leader um, in the conditions that they're, that they're in. Um, what, I, what I thought was really interesting was that Dumas included the the two signs of the sword and the cross there and uh yeah i kind of built the the article on that point to say these are these are scenes from a time when europe still cared about something that we seem to have completely forgotten in a modern western context yeah. no matter what nation you're a part of french english American, Australian, doesn't matter. Uh, the West itself has lost this um, this kind of anchor for itself, this organizational principle. Yeah. And the anchor, the cross and the sword, in the article you point out that Dumas and his family are brown. They're Haitians on some. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, yeah. His his father, do I have if I have the lineage right? That family, one of the the men was the leader of the French military, was the general, correct? Do I have this right? 
Yeah, Alexander Dumas' father, Alexander Dumas Senior. He was the he was the leader of the French, French military. And so, yeah. right. And so, what you have is is white people quote white people assenting to a black man to do all mm-hmm. of their. How should you say? To defend them in everything that they do, and he is mm-hmm. seen as capable of this. And this is, you know, two hundred and fifty years ago, right? Uh, uh, yeah, more now. My point is, is that you're using this beautiful, brilliantly, this story to show that there's a transcendence of race even when it was supposedly barbaric and people all were killing each other and there was this, you know, lack of clarity, unable to see the, the, you know, the scientific world vision of how everyone should get along. There's no UN. And here you have black folks operating within French culture. And now something about that story is helping us explain the current rebellion. Right. And it has to do with homage. Yeah. And so for, for me, my next question is, is the West, thinks in terms of race when they look at France right now and the, and the race riots. But mm-hmm. you say it's actually a problem of homage, the kind that you were yes. just talking about. How, how do you mean that? Um, well, uh, France is not the same France that it was in the time when uh, Alexander Dumas Senior arrived on the shore of the of the motherland from the colony. Um, I think because the West now considers countries as a sort of corporation structure, where we've set up this country, and therefore, as long as it has the same name, it's essentially the same as it was two hundred years ago. It's a it's a ship of Theseus problem. Yes, where you've got the original. Uh, you know this Greek problem that they they created to show that the issue is you have the original and then you're replacing one part and then you replace another part and it's sort of like how many parts can you replace before the entire ship is no longer the same ship. So people are still looking at the countries of Europe now and thinking we're, we're looking at the same country that existed 400, 500 years ago. It is not the case whatsoever. Um, when Alexander Dumas Senior arrives from Haiti, he's coming in with the father who's bringing him uh, from from a colony into French society because his father wants to introduce him to French society and to make him French proper, not French colonial. Um, the 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 interesting thing for me is that even though this this boy at the time, his mother is a slave. She's a West African slave they've purchased while they're in Haiti. He doesn't enter France with the burning hatred of the French that enslaved his own mother because his mother is a slave at this point. She was never freed, to my knowledge. He enters France with this feeling that he's going to prove himself a man of society and then he enters a France where there is no affirmative action. <laughs> now, uh, it, it, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a really, um, it's a really magnificent thing to look at that situation because, uh, there's no place in that time period where any, um, uh, how shall I say it? 
special favours would have been given. The French at that point, they were, they were, they were empire building. They didn't want incompetent people running their military. Their military was how they established themselves uh, as an imperial power. So when Alexander Dumas enters France and then you know joins the joins the army and starts to rise through the ranks, he's doing this with a full uh, commitment to. Uh, becoming a part of the French imperial structure. And I think this is something that is maybe very shocking for, uh, for people now to think about because we're so used to talking about uh, like the kind of Black Lives Matter attitude and uh, colonial subjects must instantly hate the empire that's, you know, created the colonies, etc. But he didn't. He wanted to become uh, a leader within that empire, and he did. Um, and he did it by giving his homage to to France and to uh, to the men that were training him, and you know, eventually becoming uh, the head of the army and <laughs> giving his homage to Napoleon. You know, I think it's a very striking kind of um, event. You know, that that family become uh, infused in creating France at that time. Right, the father and yeah. the son. Who's going to exactly be the great and they do it in two ways i mean his father does it as a military man and then his son he does it in a in an artistic way but both of them together are building france uh yeah. one with the sword one with the one with the pen it's i, I think it's fascinating and so is your point that you, you're not really taking up whether or not homage to you know, Liberté and Egalité and Napoleon, whether that's not, you're not really like way to go, correct homage, correct fealty. No, what you're no. Saying is there, there was fee, there was homage. There was an obedience, a type of willingness to bend and that that bending itself has its own value. Is, is that something like what you're arguing? Yeah. Um, I'm arguing that, creating France was only possible because of homage. So for, for any, for any stage of what France was, you know, uh, Royal France, Imperial France, Jacobin France, the Republic, all of it, none of it could have been built without homage. Uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not a fan of the Liberty, uh, Egality, Fraternity France. I'm not the Jacobin. I don't like what they did, which is something that I talk about in the article later on. But in the beginning, just think about what it means to actually build a country and to be a part of a country, to be part of a nation. Uh, nobody could have demonstrated that better than Alexander Dumas Senior. Nobody. Um, and his homage was not given conditionally. Uh, there was no um, uh, there was no benefit to him doing it so that uh, you know he could escalate the rights of other people around him and that you know it was it, he he was a military man he served the country he did what he's he was doing uh, I think my my issue with this is that. I've, I didn't want to be mistaken for uh, 
supporting militarism necessarily. But part of this thing in the in Western culture that people will do a, do a duty and pay homage to to uh, to a sovereign or something. Uh, because this is missing, I think everybody's missing the point of how f- how the French Republic was created in the first place. Okay, yeah. awesome. so you got this republic. I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. You are too. Yeah. So, so I yeah. love this though. So now the republic, and for people who are listening, watch this. This is amazing now because part of what we're trying to do on the podcast all the time is make history relevant, right? Like, well, I don't care about that. That's different. That's really not relevant. To me. <laughs> but it's relevant because. Now what you have is, 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 as you call them, they're sort of new Normans. So we could talk about mm. the Norman invasion. And it's really interesting that you point out, well, maybe, but let's just, let me just go this way. So you got black Africans coming now from countries where yeah. we work and where I live, Mali. I, I was just in, yeah. I was just in Baltimore. I took three Uber rides. All three were Malians. We were speaking Bambara and each Malian told me a different story about their existence. I'm just going to take a quick riff and I'll get back to this question. Oh, go for him. I really want you to hear this. We're not doing an interview. We're doing a conversation. So the first guy got in, I'm like, this guy sounds French. I know he's West African. And so I say, you speak French. And then he got Kenny. And we start talking. And so what happens is, is when you do that and you're a foreigner or white guy, the it's very cool. All and you know this. All the yeah. all the guard comes down. Yes, this isn't a taxi yes. driver who's just got white people in the back. Now he's like, "What is this? There's no way this guy can speak my local language." Yeah. First thing we start talking, we're jamming. My wife's there. He's like, "You know what? This country, it's awesome. It allows me to have freedom to make money, and then I send it home. I don't want to go home. I go home to see my parents." But the second guy, and this is the next day. Second guy, same thing. I'm like, this guy's Mali and Muhammad. And I said, okay. Start speaking to him, Bomber. He's freaking out. And I say, how was your experience here? You know, he goes, oh, man, I've been here 19 years. All I do is get up, work, send money home. And then I asked him this phrase. Yeah, but who makes, in, in West Africa, you know this phrase. This is an important phrase. Who makes your ticket diga na? Who, who makes your food? This is really important for a man. Because mm-hmm. it demonstrates if he makes it himself, it's not that cool. Like you haven't acquired much. Like you haven't acquired a wife. You don't have kids. And he's like, "No, nah, I mm-hmm. make it myself. I make it myself." And he was sad. He goes, "This country's destroying yeah. me. I have no peace." Yeah. And then the third guy was like, "This country is coming. The West is coming apart because it's dominated by liars." And this guy was politically talking. He says, "I don't want to go home, but when I go home, I realize is that." America has lost its ability to relate to my people because they know, and this is very fascinating, they mm. no longer tell the truth to my people, but the Russians yeah. will. They just want to do business. Yeah. The Americans are all caught up in human rights and all this other. He said, just knock it off. We're not idiots. So I got all yeah. these three perspectives. And then as I'm reading your article, I'm like, okay, these are the same cats. All three of them, by the way, had come via France. <laughs> yeah. They had all started in France. And when that part of the mm-hmm. conversation came up, they're like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be there. And so yeah. in your article, talk about to us, talk to me, really. These guys that are in France now, 
they haven't given homage, but it's not because they're not willing. Is it because they're not invited? Is it because homage is a dead concept and there's no place to put the homage, the honor, the hierarchy? Is that what's going on? Um, okay. Why are they burning stuff? I think it's because when you're an immigrant and you're going into a completely alien world, which is like going from the West into an African nation. And you've done this because you're speaking with these, with these gentlemen, you understand the, you understand the ecology of the language and how it's, it's coming from a place. It's coming from a, from a, from an experience, right? Yeah. It, it so, almost is the it, to speak. It is mm -hmm. to experience the ecology of the place or the e environment. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's yeah. to be integrated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with me. If I speak uh, East African language to somebody, and then the you know, it's the same thing. You know, they get confused, but then they're loving it, and then suddenly we're back home together. Um. Well, French people don't have this experience. So first off, I will say if you if you're a colonial like me, you don't even speak French because we don't. We just lost it. We lost everything. Uh, we've been churned up in an industrial kind of processing mechanism to get a colony system running. Moved around a lot. So what's happening is that people are arriving in a place and they're not entering an ecology where they can uh, have a feeling of becoming a part of the ecology and then being able to carry that with them. They're arriving in, an, in a machine. They're, in, they're arriving into an imperial machine. So this is your three taxi drivers coming to the States and having three different perspectives, right? But... This is what it is to migrate into an imperial power. It's a different experience than going into a, a small nation that has not been an imperial power or hasn't been an imperial power for maybe a thousand years. Mm. So the mentality of the people inside an imperial power is very, very different to a uh, an independent nation that's just been doing its own thing for a while. Mm. And, I mean, I had this feeling when I was in Paris, I went there, I didn't like it. And I thought, this is really strange. You know, is there something wrong with me? Because I don't like Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And every, everyone's like Paris. You know, you're supposed to like Paris. It's I like, Paris, like Paris, right? So, okay, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'll, tell you what, I'll tell you why I didn't like Paris. Because it felt like Africa went sad. Because there are so many Africans in Paris, but it didn't feel like I was in Africa. It felt like something was wrong. I'm surrounded by Africans and I don't feel like I'm in Africa. What's wrong with this? And people could say like, oh, well, you know, obviously because it's mass migration, but no, 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 it wasn't that. You think about, <clears throat> excuse me, you think about the, the importation of a large group of people. Usually what would be happening is they bring a culture with them and there's a retention of joy for some time that they can kind of keep their own culture when they're there. I didn't have this feeling when I was in Paris. I had the feeling that there were enormous quantities of Africans that had moved into a place 
where they couldn't sit. They did not know where to plant their feet. And everyone was kind of faking it. You know, we're going to fake French. We're going to do this thing where we've got our little bakeries and we're going to eat crepes. And even the guy that cooked me my crepes every day, he was really lovely, a gentleman from Algeria. He thought I was a Berber. He thought I was a North African. Is that right? And then I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I said, no, 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 I've got French heritage and I'm here to visit. And I said, this place sucks, man. Why did you leave Africa? And he's laughing, you know? So having this really, really nice conversation. And I was getting a sense that, they can't find their feet. There's nowhere, the f- there's nowhere for them to introduce the ecology of their uh, African experience within that particular imperial machine. So I left and then I thought, something's going on. What is it about the French imperial machine? And obviously cut forward a few years when I'm looking at the riots, I've been reading a bunch of other things, listening to other thinkers and their you know work on, on the French Republic and what happened there. It makes sense to me that what they've done is they've arrived into an imperial system and there's something wrong with the ecology of that imperial system. And then I start thinking, okay, what is the ecology of the French Republic really? Like not just croissants and nice wine and cheese. What happened in France to make it modern France as everybody knows it? Then I start thinking, oh, okay, would I as a, as a migrant be able to plant my feet here and enter this ecology? What would it look like had I never had any Western exposure or even a knowledge or a memory of um, French heritage to kind of feel some kind of affinity with the with the French system. What does this place look like if you're arriving as an alien from another planet? And then I was like, ah, okay, now this is making sense to me. Uh, the condition of the French Republic itself is uh, generating a feeling of not being able to enter the French Republic and retain some kind of humanity that exists outside of it. I think that's the issue. And I'd argue that it, it's for the same reason that America's just steps behind, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's because there's a, 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 come on kilts. There's like this weird fear to assent to a higher, a higher good. Now I'm going to call it God. Mm-hmm. And for us, mm-hmm. we're going to call it Christ resurrected there's a weird fear to ascent to the highest things on the highest point of the hierarchy and to say, I ascent and bow and I submit. And I know West Africans, they Mm -hmm. understand submission. Right now there's people out there who are like, submission is a negative. (laughs) That's because you already are hearing it in the milieu of the West. Yes. Submission here is what happens when you got to get home because your dad's mad because he told you you got to be home by 10 and it's 12. You're submitting to something like love. It's not that you it's your it's 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 what you're called to already. And so the act of submitting yes. demands a highest good. And I mean this with my whole heart, France and America. We refuse to assent to something because it's like we're ashamed that there could be something bigger than my own desires. I really believe this with my heart. Mm-hmm. And so as a community, let's call America a community. What we do is we, we and I know this from our dinners that we throw, what we do is we just keep going down the import hierarchy 
the the meaning hierarchy until we get to a place where we can all have a conversation. You know what they sound like? Mm -hmm. um, are you thinking about getting a new job or you're going to stay in that job? How much do you make? And that's the conversation that unites us. And I'm telling mm -hmm. you, when the French or when the Malians get there, they don't want to have this conversation. They, that's a life that they they already know this. They want something bigger. They want something higher. Even if it's Imperial France, I think that's one of the points of your article. Even if it's Imperial yeah. France, mm -hmm. like Dumas came and he said, I'll, I'll submit to this because there's something good in it and there's a higher good. We don't have, I don't even know what to offer somebody anymore. What's the higher good? I, I, you can make more money here. I, I don't know what it is. Anyway, I I think there's anyway, your article got me alive on that idea, which is okay, what is homage to? What yeah. is it to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Yeah. <laughs> well, um okay. Is it so much there? I mean as a baseline to define yourself as French now is to say, I am part of liberty, equality, fraternity. To define yourself as a Frenchman or woman from the French Republic as it is now is to come from a moment in time when almost all of France was uh, inflamed by a rage against homage and they literally chopped off the heads of their own aristocracy in a rage against having to give homage to something higher than themselves so when i was discussing this in the article you know dumas he comes from the napoleonic era where the, the french are kind of going maybe oh whoops we made a mistake with the revolution we want to kind of reboot <laughs> we want to reboot uh, like this reboot. little guy's kind of a pain in the ass yeah. <laughs> who's this short guy oh he might get the job done you know <laughs> reboot. Like, <laughs> reboot. <laughs> um but that's what they did. They were like uh, the the republic had 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 decided. Okay, enough homage. We don't want it anymore. We don't have these higher things that we need to pay uh, obeisance to. We don't have uh, hierarchies and authorities and sovereigns and uh, patriarchies that we have to pay our homage to. No, everything can be destroyed. We can start again from the beginning, put everyone on an equal footing. We have the equality. Then we can have the, fr the real fraternity based on everything being equal constantly. So, of course, we all get, like, used to talking about the French Revolution. It's kind of normalized. Oh, yeah, French Revolution, French Re Revolution. Uh, having, a, having a good discussion with the, um, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown over the last couple of years about what that really means, you know, what it means for civilization to go through a rev revolutionary process, it's like we've whitewashed the experience of what would have looked like a genocide at the time. And so we've been talking to, with each other um, on the Mosaic Arc about, you know, recently we were talking about Rwanda and what happened with the Hutus and the Tutsis and all of this stuff. People are freaking out, out about what's going on down in South Africa with um, with the EFF rally and, you know, this uh, 
this liberation song that was being chanted about killing the boars and no one's willing to look into Europe and think when we talk about revolutions, what are we actually saying? It's a whitewashed, polite, uh, genteel, bourgeois way of explaining. We went around and we killed everybody. (laughs) <laughs> from the moment the French, you know, from the moment the French ran the Bastille, they saw the Bastille, what they do, they cut heads off, bang, bang, bang. You know, it's like cut, 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 beheading people. So I just find it really fascinating that at that at that moment in time, all of France just goes, right, homage, we don't need any more. We need just this uh, uh, rejection of a, of, a, of a hierarchy. And then I was thinking, okay, what does that do to a country? Because if you look at what it does to a ship or what it does to a military, well, if you get rid of homage in a military or on a boat, things don't run very well. <laughs> but then there's there's something going on in a culture when you get rid of it too, right? Like this is my thinking process. It can't just be about maintaining infrastructure in the sense of keeping a ship sailing or, you know, keeping the army marching. Homage is necessary in all of these different uh, spheres of life or things start to collapse. And I think that's what we started to see in France now. This culture that's cr- created from a revolution and a revolutionary mindset has started inviting all of these people in. Wow, wow, wow. And they come from cultures where you give homage. That's right. Now, how do you assimilate into a culture that doesn't give homage when you're coming from a place that is grounded in that kind of thinking? It's not just a case of racial minority assimilation problems we have a fundamental human crisis when people are arriving in europe and realizing that the humanity of europeans has been damaged by their own revolutionary activities and i think this is what no one was willing to talk about because it's too no- painful to say maybe we did something and that we're the problem it's not these guys coming in here I think this is maybe the issue. Well, uh, man, I tell you guys, we're going to link the article. You, you have to see it, right? The Normans, <laughs> Normans in France, in Paris. But, but I want to, I want to say something about that. It's a little odd to ask people to embrace our highest values when actually we don't know what they are. Like. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a magic trick. I wish these people would be more advanced. We hear it here. And I'm like, okay, name three, go right now that we embrace as Americans. And it doesn't count to say Americans embrace individualism. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. What do individuals embrace in this community, in this culture? Individualism. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. That's a circular craziness because I want to know what, individuals embrace like go outside of the of the loop but so Mm -hmm. i don't i don't have any problem understanding why africans are breaking stuff but here's another question that i i I do have problems understanding is i can't envision like you're not in america right now you're in australia i can't envision there ever in my lifetime and i'm getting old but in my kids life which president everyone likes I don't, <laughs> I don't think we're capable of, of, of that because I don't know that we can find someone <laughs> who can speak the language of enough people anymore. The languages are too disparate, the spiritual mm-hmm. languages. 
The spiritual languages of yeah. Americans are too disparate. I don't mm -hmm. know how we get behind anyone. I don't think it matters. You can have Trump 4.0. There is no way anybody can fit the bill anymore. And so there's no one for our immigrants. There's no one for French immigrants to look up to in that sense, because looking up <laughs> is not possible. And your article talks about this, man. So let's do this then. How does France or Australia or the United States, how do we activate homage? You think, hmm. you think there's a way, is there a return? Um, I think it can, I think it can be uh, resurrected. Cause it's a kind, it's, it's not really a reactivation. I mean, like I, I see it as kind of Lazarus, you know, mm. <laughs> wake up, come out of the tomb. Uh, the West needs to be Lazarus. That's how bad it is. <laughs> I'm not going to mince words. I don't like it here. Uh, people can say a lot of things about, you know, how I'm enjoying nice infrastructure and I've always got food on my table and everything, but that's fine. But Christ said, you know, man does not live on bread alone. We got a lot of bread. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that we're starving for here. The main thing that I think needs to be acknowledged is the the version of Western civilization that we're living in is not the same Western civilization that existed in the Middle Ages. That's great. And once everyone acknowledges this ship of Theseus problem that we're living in, this civilizational ship of Theseus where we replaced all the parts and it looks the same, but it's not the same boat. Once everyone can do that, then we can start to think about what kind of civilization our current uh, remake has uh, has tried to imitate and failed to imitate so spectacularly. Mm. So I look back further than 19th century because a lot of people are, are looking back at, you know, pre-World War One, we're going back to the 19th century nationalism. I go, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to go further. What did it look like when the cultures that created the cathedrals and the beautiful cities that I like to visit when I go to Europe, what did those cultures do? Why were those people able to make these artistic um, creations that are impossible for people down here in the colonies right now? What, what was going on in them? that allowed them to create the exoskeleton of beauty that they've left behind in Europe. And um, in short, I think it comes from the first thing you were saying, you know, recognizing the, the higher authority. We have to deal with the God problem in as Europeans. We have to deal with the God problem it's first. It's for the meaning problem, right? It's the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's what you guys are doing. It's what the it's what your community is doing when you guys go to write and what Rachel Fulton Brown is making then writing her books and her articles and her videos. Mm -hmm. uh, but I so the ship of thesis is interesting. You can make an argument that the ship has a spirit no matter how many new planks they put in it. That it actually is the same boat, right? That's that flip side of yes, and that yes. that 
that may be true that it's the same boat no matter how many times you replace the the planks and in that case you might be able to argue that oh that spirit that boat needs to sink <laughs> now <laughs> <laughs> just put some cannonballs through let that baby go to the bottom <laughs> yeah, i really like what you said about revolution though you can't do it the revolutionary mindset is is nihil right on some level it's I think we're in that cycle. A lot of people on the internet, on our little orthodox subculture internet, they, they talk about the revolutionary mindset is the problem. I mean, think about it. I don't know how you grew up, but this is pretty crazy. All right. This is crazy. Where is the camera? There it is right there, sister. I was asked numerous times, not just by my loving parents, but by all of my society, what are you going to be when you grow up? No. If that's the shit's not a revolution, I don't know what is. Like, well, I am something right now. What do you mean? Well, oh, you're gonna have to kill that. You can have to become mm -hmm. something new. Like, just that whole thought process is just so deeply embedded. Did they talk like that in Australia? Well, yeah, in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they did. I used to think that was such a great question. Oh, the freedom to become what I want, and then you quickly realize I can't. My back is crooked. I ain't playing in the NBA because that was the plan. <laughs> I, oh, you mean you, oh, what am I going to become? Um, mm -hmm. And then it's terrifying. Yeah. I have to, I have to kill myself on some, I have to revolve. I have to become something new when I already am something. I, I find that's another conversation, but. I don't know, sister. So what, what happens now? Let's talk about your articles. We can find them. Tell us what you want us to go read, because we'll link this article. But okay. we need to see. We need to read these fairy tales, right? We should go and look at them. Oh, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I would like people to read it. Um, the, the reason why it's called Normans in Paris is because yay – uh, you know, Ye has a track, it's niggas in Paris. And I was I was reflecting on this concept of uh, modern race war, like, thinking that looked very, very different in ancient Europe, looked very, very different. But the main focus of the, of the piece really is in thinking about the homage of Europe and what Europeans used to pay homage to, homage to. Um, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people to see what ancient Europe used to look like in terms of the culture, the religious thinking, and the the way that their homage was activated as Europeans. And that's that's kind of my main my main uh, my main thing to to introduce people to it's not it's not a definitive explanation at all but i wanted to get right. people to start to look at exactly what was going on in europe before this constant you know uh cutting of heads happened before before the before the republican fever set into the people before everyone caught this revolutionary malaria that we seem to not be able to kick um europe looked very different and uh yeah the i mean the title's pretty cheeky but i also really don't like normans <laughs> it's like my my racism pops out but i don't like normans i don't like vikings so no. you know <laughs> is it is it is it is what europe looked like is it attractive what can we 
can we get down with it? Can should we care about it? What's 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 beautiful about it? I mean, first of all, it looked more familiar to me, and I think it would look way more familiar to you as well. Uh, what the what the um, what the West is becoming in its kind of globo homo mode of like multiculturalism and everything, to me, it just seems more and more that what we're trying to do as modern people is to imitate medieval Europe, failing miserably because we want the the vibe of the medieval European civilization without any of the the fundamentals that were there. Terms of people paying homage to each other, having yes. faith, having yes. common language, common culture, common traditions, heritage, uh, family connections, clan life, these kinds of things. But re- really, when everyone complains about all the global homo stuff, I'm like, this all wouldn't really be that bad, guys. It's just that you don't know where you're fitting here because this system has no, uh, it has no spiritual structure. That's right. You know, there's, you so it. basically it's like that. Yeah. I mean, like there's no spiritual structure. Uh, so, I mean, like I instantly, if someone's like, you know, if we're going to catapult you back to like 800, 800 AD and you go roll around Europe. Yeah. Sweet. I think in, in the sense of like being a Coptic Orthodox Christian, I would wait, I would make way more sense to the people in Europe in that time than I do to them now in this no current year. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. As would you, as would you, John, like, well, uh, but I also think we, something happened to us. We both converted to orthodoxy, mm. you know, again, we can argue about that, but the point is, is we converted the, we had a revolution of sorts into a type of humility, into a type Mm -hmm. of, of thinking that, and you're taught and I'm taught, we should try to go small and quiet and humble. And we don't do it, but the ideal is so different than the ideal that we're we were brought up in the West. And it's it's really mm-hmm. funny. To your last point, I think you'll like this. It just made me think of why, if you and I went to France and we saw each other, why we would kiss on the cheek. And so uh-huh. Americans see that and they're like, so European. No, mm-hmm. it's Christian because that is the kiss of peace that I'm I am embracing you as an icon, an image of God's creation, and in particular of his his own incarnation. And you're my sister, actually. And I'm actually mm-hmm. kissing you on the cheek in that sense. So everybody wants that that familiarity. In America, everyone's like, oh, I wish we were closer, but they don't want to submit to that idea. And interesting. And that idea is what's so beautiful. It's not the kissing on the cheek. It's the idea that we are actually brothers and sisters. That's why Europeans embrace that way. Most of them don't even know that anymore. That is Mm. the point of that embrace. And I don't know how that changed. I don't know how people start believing in God or whatever. How did you? Well, we do that. We do the kiss thing here. Like wogs do it. That's why. That's why. As I was saying earlier, you know, we have this third ethnic category. It's real. It's not something I'm making up. Like it if you look like at it, <laughs> it, it of, of course it would. But uh, no, uh, unfortunately, even I'm not that creative. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's it's just uh, it is what it is. The yeah, the the kissing thing, we do it. Uh, 
because people people still have the the anchor in uh, in that old uh, old European way of doing things, and they've not they've not lost it. Yeah. Um, and they you, will. you can. F- they will. They might. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know. All I'm right, let me so ask sure. you this, and then we'll, we'll finish. Mm. Can the Wogs? Yeah. Now I don't know that this is happening, so forgive my presupposition. No, it's fine. In the Wogs, should there be no priests in their churches, could the Wogs still end up embracing themselves and kissing on the cheek? Like, are they related events? And I don't know that that happens. I, I don't know that you got to have one to have the other mm-hmm. on that level. In other words, are the churches failing in a way in Australia that will eventually kill that that notion of I embrace my brother on with a kiss of peace on the cheek? Mm. Or are they? I don't know. Are the churches failing in Australia? Um, yeah, but I think they failed everywhere. I think that COVID experience highlighted the failure of the churches in a lot of ways. Me too. I would argue then. Yeah. That that yeah. familiarity that you're talking about with the wogs, that thing mm-hmm. is up for grabs. It's, I, I say this because in Georgia, a very ancient Christian country, uh, people do very ancient things naturally, but right now yes. they're they're in a huge, they're in a huge moment where they're going to have to decide: are they going to embrace the Georgian of the churches or the Georgia of the of the malls or the banks? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And and they're in it. And I would say if they embrace the banks and the malls, what's going to happen is they won't kiss each other on the cheeks. I don't know when that'll end, but it'll end. I really think that. Um, that's terrible terribly sad. And that's I terribly I, sad. I'm using the kissing as a metaphor, obviously, but mm. you know, it's not it's not that important that they kiss. My point is is there's a brother that yeah. familiarity there. I don't think it withstands. I don't think it withstands an embrace of Western revolutionary mindset, or as you called it, Republican mindset. I don't think it can do it. I don't. I think we all become a part of the machine. By the way, that's our next conversation: the vending machine. Because yes, you've been talking about that a long time. It's it's just man, does it make sense? It makes a ton. Of sense. I mean, like part of the part of the issue before um, before we finish, you know, in terms of what I've wrote in Normans in Paris, was I was trying to explain that that Europe Europe went through the collapse. Europe's gone through the collapse before the Roman Empire collapsed. Mm. The Christian the Christian reality emerges out of machine. It really it really did, and the. The main saint that I was focused on in Normans in Paris is for me the herald of some possibility and some potential of Christian reality re-emerging in this machine. Uh, And that saint and his, uh, his demonstration of his homage to God above machinery was the thing that revived European uh, the the European spirit? So, of course, you know the saint in question. I think is going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Maurice. Maurice, yeah, yeah, Maurice. Tell us saint who he Maurice. was. 
He was an Egyptian. Saint Maurice, he was an Egyptian, black African Egyptian, uh, who was uh, the leader of the Theban Legion, the commander of the Theban Legion. So, like Ale- Alexander Dumas, seniors, uh, uh, Alexander Dumas, you know, he led an army, he led a military, uh, and he existed in a time during heavy Christian persecutions. So him and his entire uh, unit were marched across the European Alps, taken all the way from Africa and marched across the Alps and sent to Gaul, which is what is now uh, modern France. This is Maurice. This is what, the 300s probably right in there or no, later? uh, Yeah, it was around 300s. No, it would have been around the 300s. Yeah, so they get there and, of course, the Romans start – Testing them, you know, are you going to serve us? You're going to serve Christ, this, this this Christ of yours and your strange African religion. So of course they say no. We serve Christ. We serve our strange African uh, religion first before we serve this empire. And I think that was like my point is to kind of show everybody, shock everyone out of this thinking that the ancient world thought in the race terms that everybody's analyzing the situation in France now because they didn't. Back then, Maurice was the civilized Christian fighting against the machinery, fighting against the machinery of empire that was atheistic because, you know, Romans to us are atheistic. They don't believe in the resurrected Christ. So he comes in and then the Romans decimate the entire legion and create martyrs out of them all, including St. Maurice. And his martyrdom becomes so significant in Europe that eventually <laughs> Germanic people uh, pick up his sword, pick up his relic, and identify him as their patron when they're creating the Holy Roman Empire. And I thought that was really magnificent. The Europeans, ancient Europeans, had no problem with this man being black as cocoa. He was, he was dark. Uh, his... His martyrdom was what mattered. And so I, I'm i not really very sad. I think Christians in general have, uh, have got to realize that when they're, um, when they're moving in the world as Christians, we already have been given prototypes to show us out of our current situations in many ways. It's just the technology's got an upgrade. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I rubbed it in so much. I was like, if, if the Holy Roman Empire can take take up the, the sword of St. Maurice and hold it and say African martyrs, the blood of African martyrs are, are, uh, are protecting us, you know? They, and these, they did. These, they did. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to carry this sword uh, in, hom- in homage to him and, uh, and build our Christendom, which, Man, uh, you know, I think is amazing. It is amazing. It's also beautifully woven together in your article. And then last thing, you went, put yours on Gab. I put my race article on Gab. And yeah, it was amazing. A lot of weird racially charged comments started happening. <laughs> oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. This, maybe we talk about that later, but that was, <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, so white people really do want to stay white people. There was a lot of weird comments about. Yeah. Uh, just 
the fundamentally the weirdest comments were like, oh, clearly if this guy's denying race, then he's a he hates white people. I was like, mm-hmm. that's very odd. It really <laughs> you can tell I'm I'm about to cry. <laughs> they got you. <laughs> Such a weird way to understand the article I just wrote. Then you realize, oh, they're using this very scientific term of race to imagine their identity. Good luck with that. Anyway, um, I feel like I didn't laugh enough with you on this one. I I feel like a jerk. I should have laughed. Why? More. I don't know. I guess. Were you scared. nervous? Were you worried I was going to drop it and n words altered the thing? <laughs> By the way, I, it doesn't make me even a little nervous. It makes my kids nervous. <laughs> I don't. It's not like you're. You're not. It's not like you're shazamming on. It's not like there's black people that were going. Yeah, it's, it's, we're not yelling at people. I never understood that word out of context. As if I'm teaching you about the Niger River, and I said that is in part where the word nigger comes from. Why is that a problem? I do not understand how that's like. Like I'm in trouble for that. It just doesn't make any sense. You said it. You already said the N word. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if Corey will beep it. <laughs> Sorry, Corey. <laughs> uh, I do not understand how the word has power. If it's in a context like I just used, it actually should have less power. I don't understand it. Do you understand it? I have my, I mean, I have my theories. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you yeah. do it in a short, hot second? Um, You're like, no. I think uh, I'll try. <laughs> I think it's a. Uh, I think it's uh It's become. Um, it's become a way of gatekeeping ethnogenesis in America. I love that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's weirdly a part of the building of the division. It's really the continuation of the work of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean that with my whole heart. Looking from the outside, okay, I've said this before when I've been online. I'll say it quickly, but I know you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you go and you migrate into France, you don't know French, you go, okay, I want to learn to speak French. So I'm going to learn all the French words because I want to have a very rich and deep uh immersion into the French vocabulary. And always when you are immigrating into another culture, the idea is that the stronger your language skills become, the more social ascension you get because the, you know, you get to ascend the social hierarchy based on your linguistic capacity. America has done something very strange with its language and exporting particular dialects around the world as a foreigner hearing the american english that gets pumped out through all of your media what we hear you know as a, as a colonial person this is what i hear i hear an empire that's speaking a kind of language that's this form of english uh, an imperial form of english and within it there's a dialect that's spoken that's only available to particular people and only particular people are allowed to use a dialect if they're uh categorized as uh, as uh, licensed to use this dialect. So if I was as a foreigner going into this nation and I'm trying to figure out what language I speak, I don't know actually what language I should be adopting. It stops a vertical ascension into a hierarchy. 
because I don't know what language I'm supposed to be proficient in. Then you think about it. You go, okay, if I learned the, the one that says the N-word all the time versus the one that doesn't say the N-word, which hierarchy am I supposed to ascend? You see instantly the division of hierarchy there in terms of the language. So you go, I have to choose then because I'm not fluid. Then you realize actually in America what's happened is every family that tried to cross and unite them has been prevented from doing so because the moment they start using vocabulary from different hierarchy in the other one, they lose the social status. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that makes sense. But you're, you're all not allowed to speak the same language. From like a colonial perspective, but if I was going to bring somebody in like Alexander Dumas Sr.'s father did, if I was going to bring, uh, you know, like a, a, a child into this empire and say, okay, we're going to learn the language because I want you to ascend socially in this empire, looking at it from the outside, all I can see is that this is uh, preventing homage because only certain people can say certain words. That, that's right. And that and is why everything collapses. Wow. And so then the non-N-word vocabulary, th- that is the ascending vocabulary, right? That's the machine's vocabulary. That's the vish- machine's accent, if you will, is the non-N-word, right? But Bure- Yeah, that's the, bureauc- that's the bureaucratic yeah, that, that's how you ascend. Yeah, <laughs> I see. You see the trick? It's like yeah. I have to deny that in order to ascend. That's right. But then, in reality, outside of the bureaucracy, people are speaking differently. But you have to choose. You're either with the folk or you're with the bureaucracy. And it's and like black uh, folks who use it. Mm. Black folks who use it. This is very interesting. Oh my gosh, this is a whole nother conversation. Black mm-hmm. folks who use it on the regular don't ascend, even though they're using it with black folks or they're using it in ways that are allowed. They don't ascend either. The people that ascend mm. are the black folks, yeah, who who've adopted the language of the machine. And I see there's there, it creates division. Yeah, it does. It does create division. Mm. When in reality, the word only has power in context, and that's just. That's just too much, right? It's it's too complicated and too nuanced and too human for the machine. It 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 needs its own accent. I think I understand what you're saying. Do I understand? Yeah, I think, I think you I do. Understand. I think you do, yeah. Um well like the 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 national machinery, the imperial machinery now, it's not the same uh, it's not the same situation as moving to another country 200, 300 years ago. No, it's coming to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the problem then is is like, okay, so we, 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 we're trying to, to learn the language. We learn the bureaucratic language or we're learning the folk language. Now we're not having a choice. The bureaucratic language is being imposed on us. And what I find really strange about the American way of doing things is the bureaucracy or the uh, the corporate industry, it profits off pirating from folk language and selling it to everybody, but then we're told we can't use folk language. So it's this very strange uh, 
commodification of vocabulary that should be freely exchanged. Because in any other cultural context, vocabulary is freely exchanged and people that live together will pick up words and freely use words okay, with each other. That's how language is created, right? That's the point. Is That's the human that's the human yes. ecology, environment, whatever you want to call it. That's how humans mm. work. That's just how yep. it works. And now suddenly I have to fit into a, an inhuman language system. It's not unlike currency, you know. The way mm. currency works, it's 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 not to be it's not given to you to be used. It comes out of your experience. So cows for pigs and and it's a natural part of our existence. You introduce yes. the Federal Reserve, you introduce the big banks. And now what they're trying to do is, is yeah, speak a certain currency language. That's why they hate Bitcoin on some level. It's it's really mm-hmm. fascinating. There's right, there's a there's a way to be. Yeah. It does feel like it we've lost respect for a decentralized um thought thought process. Decentralized meaning you have yours, I'll have mine, and where we meet, things are good, but in reality. Um, I respect the fact that you've gone down a different path. Your language is different. And I still respect you, though I may not live with you. And I may not even integrate with you ever. And that's an okay world for me. That that world doesn't seem crazy to me. But I don't see how that works with the machine, the vending machine culture that you talk about. I, I don't know. I, I'm off. Well, I'm in a rabbit hole right now. To, to, to finish off on like this language problem. Dumas, Alexander Dumas Sr., he had dent to France, he ascended the hierarchy, he paid his homage, and then he was paid homage. The Europeans around him called him the black devil. So we have this kind of insight into linguistically how they operate with each other. They share a language, they're sharing a language, unrestricted, they speak French together because they're French. The Holy Roman Empire, it takes up the sword of Saint Maurice. Maurice, as a name, comes from the Greek... Mauron, which means black. Mm. So I thought this was really interesting because, of course, in Latin languages, what's the word for black? Negro. There's no uh, derogatory thing going on when you say Saint Maurice. If you say it in a Latinized format, it would be Saint Negro. So what are Europeans doing for all this time? They're saying Saint Negro. And I thought this was wonderful because... (laughs) Now it's a derogatory thing because we don't think in sainthood and we don't conceptualize in this bureaucratic machine, vending machine, that it's possible for people to acknowledge each other in this way through a holy love as they're saying it. And it's because everything that we're doing now is commodity. It's not sainthood. So, yeah, that's the... We'll end on that. I'm not ruining My outro. That is... All right, people, think about that. Saint Negro. Saint Negro, yeah. Right. And what you just said. Oh, my. Because the focus, the emphasis is on the saint, not on the Negro. Yes. The emphasis is on the kiss. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll do this again. Wow. Now I want to keep talking. Is this part seven? (laughs) That was really (laughs) helpful. That was really helpful. Peace to you. I'm going to just... Say goodbye in a second, but uh, guys, Kilt, uh, my philosopher um, pal from Australia, and reader stuff, it's amazing. Okay, guys, don't forget us at www.first-things.org. Remember, 
when you become a regular donor, we call those recurring donors, you join us for Inside Baseball. Just got off a great call with folks who donate monthly, quarterly, yearly. We love you. You make a huge difference. Read our Substack because when you become a recurring donor, we sit down and talk about it. Me and you. And lots of cool conversations with really good people who care about First Sinks Foundation. That's Inside Baseball. Check it out. Join up. You can find it linked and on our website. Inside Baseball, come and be a part by becoming a recurring donor. Peace out. Much love.